Hello, everyone, and welcome to 51% Crypto Research Podcast. Today in the podcast, I had a great discussion with Rune Christensen, the founder and CEO of MakerDAO. For those who are unaware, MakerDAO offers a new type of stablecoin called DAI. DAI is a crypto collateralized stablecoin backed currently by Ether, and the system also features a Maker token called MKR, which controls governance over the system. Our conversation gets into a deep dive on the Maker system, stablecoin use cases, the stability mechanics, keeping DAI stable, Andreessen Horowitz's recent investment, where they purchased 6% of Maker's tokens, and updates on the platform overall, including multi-collateral DAI. This was a timely episode, as just this week, Tether, the most popular fiat-backed stablecoin with over 3 billion Tether issued, lost its pair to the US dollar and dipped to around 93 cents on Monday. This caused many to question the viability of the system, and many look to MakerDAO since it's a fully transparent system that doesn't rely on the promises of a third party. For more information following the podcast, we issued a deep dive and research report, including a valuation model on MakerDAO on 51pct.io. With that, here's my conversation with MakerDAO's founder and CEO, Rune Christensen. Rune, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, Rune, tell us how you got started at MakerDAO and why you founded the project. Yeah, so it really goes back to the early days of Bitcoin. Uh, So I got really excited about Bitcoin already back in 2011 and made, like, put a lot of money into it uh, and saw that turn into vast amounts of money and then saw it all crash again. And basically that experience of, like, how... I mean, in the end, I was up overall, but I just had that experience of like losing a ton of money to volatility. And that really made me realize that stability is necessary for, for mainstream adoption of cryptocurrency, right? And regular people are not going to be happy with dealing with that kind of stuff, especially if, you know, they're not explicitly out to speculate, but they just want to use money for some, some regular day stuff. So that basically made clear to me that Stability is absolutely necessary for cryptocurrency and, and blockchain. And as a result, right, blockchain to really take off. So um, I got involved with stablecoins initially with BitShares. And then me and some other early BitShares community members eventually realized that Ethereum was like the perfect ecosystem where we could try to bootstrap the ultimate stablecoin, right? And just like try to make a model for a, a blockchain-based economy that could really take off. So, Rune, switching gears, Tether is the most popular stablecoin with over 3 billion Tether issued. Uh, that's USDT symbol. And just this week, Tether lost its pair to the US dollar. It dipped to around 93 cents back on Monday um, or Tuesday. You know, do you view Maker and DAI as replacing Tether, or do you view the two as coexisting? Or, you know, what are your thoughts on, on Tether's transparency issues? Well, so the thing is, I mean, so Tether is an interesting example because it's the biggest and then has this like shadiness and like opaqueness to it. Uh, but there's actually a lot of other IOU stablecoins as well, right? There's like the Gemini dollar and the Circle dollar and whole whole bunch of other, there's some European ones. Uh, what's interesting is actually that these stablecoins um, are, I mean, actually complement Maker and Dive really well. And in a way, really like, unlock some of the the truly amazing potential of that because well basically because they're the perfect on-ramp right like they're the perfect point of like where they're the perfect place where like the traditional financial system 
meets the, the blockchain. And that's the perfect place to, to transition your money from the traditional financial system into the blockchain. And then because DAI is collateral-backed, uh, it, it means we can use these stable coins as collateral, um, which is what really creates the just like a different level of liquidity because market makers then get access to just really amazing leverage and like really amazing uh, conditions where they can provide you know really deep markets really just like very flexible and high volume ability to to basically transition in and out like of dive through these stable points so die will also like so on one hand they will be really good on ramps onto die and like sort of like on and off ramps to the blockchain space but also die kind of has this really important role as being the thing that can glue them all together to each other. So like if you want to move from one IOU stablecoin to another, the like the, the most efficient way to do that is most likely going to be to purchase DAI and then sell DAI again for the other stablecoin. So technically you view Tether and DAI as coexisting or do you think that eventually Tether will be replaced by the DAI system? I mean so t- Tether is a de- I mean I definitely think that Tether uh, will be replaced eventually. Um, just, I mean, but that has nothing to do with the model, right? This, that, like, I mean, it's the fundamental type of stablecoin it is, that has something to do with how it's just, it basically started off with this, like, opaqueness and, like, this regulatory uncertainty. And I think that's going to, I mean, based because of the way financial regulation works, it's probably not something you can ever deal with. So it'll just always remain that type, like, remain in that gray zone. Whereas, with DAI itself and other also other IOU stablecoins, they can flourish being like fully sort of, you know, like above board and uh, eventually the financial, like the real fin- financial market will embrace, you know, the IOU stablecoins and then eventually also DAI. Rune, just digging into the different types of stablecoins a little bit more, we have the fiat IOUs like Tether, the seniority shares kind of like basis and carbon uh, that have low stability mechanisms. And then the crypto collateralized stablecoins like DAI that potentially have low scalability um, as their weak point. How do you think about scalability with the DAI system overall? Is this a problem that you think about, or is this something that is not an issue right now? Yeah, I mean, so I guess I I disagree with that. Um, in fact, I would say that DAI also is the most scalable um, type for the. But, but one thing that's important to note is that. When people like, I mean, I don't. I think crypto collateralized is not necessarily the best term for the type of stablecoin that is. I prefer multi collateralized, right? Like that, there are many different types of collateral because crypto nowadays just mean anything you represent on a blockchain, which includes stuff like digits gold, right? Which is just gold, and it includes stuff like other stablecoins, right? Like we just talked about, it can also be used as collateral, and then it also includes even more interesting stuff like real estate tokens. Bonds, bond tokens, right? Stock security tokens, and and basically all of that kind of stuff. So there is just this like vast universe of assets out there that are all going to fit into the maker system and be usable as collateral for that. Uh, yeah, it's basically unlimited. So Rune, just building on this point of yours, how easy is it to add new collateral types to the maker DAO system? Um, and is multi-collateral die live yet? I know the code went live a few weeks ago. Any update there uh, would be interesting. And I think we're all wondering if this is just a tweak in a line of code or something that's more in depth. Uh, well, on one hand, it's just a tweak in a line of code, right, and a governance process. But then on the other hand, of course, yeah, there is. It's all about um, 
like the risk governance framework that we use, right? So, um, of course, like one of the most important things about DAI, or the single most important thing about DAI is that it fundamentally is based around maximal stability, right? So it's like, so, so yeah, it's not about making a lot of money or like making whatever, you know, it fundamentally is about like making the best type of money. So the most stable, the most sound type of money. So that means we must have like some sort of scientific backing to the decisions that the community makes on what to include as collateral. Uh, however, we, I mean, in the, in the foundation, what we've done is we've hired experts from the traditional space who've been spending like a year basically at this point, just building, like building out on existing financial models and then transforming them into something that, that fits with our new paradigm and ultimately open, open sourcing them right? and making it something that the entire community collaborates on. Um, and then for the launch of multi-collateral DAI, so, so right now we only have single collateral DAI, right? Right now it's only backed by Ethereum. That's why the debt ceiling is so low, even though we do believe that Ethereum could actually support quite a significantly higher debt ceiling anyway. Um, but we still just keep it low because this is basically a technical beta. Once we get the real multi-collateralized full release out there, Already at launch, we will have a whole bunch of new collateral types added and a lot of more debt ceiling added to it, right? And we'll have the other stable coins as well that are going to be available at that point as collateral as well, right? And that's actually, like, just think about using another stable coin as collateral. That's already something we can see how it's very scalable, right? Because there's not, like, there's, at least from the volatility point of view, right, there's just no risk to, like, adding a ton of, like, USD peg stable coin to the collateral portfolio if what they're targeting is a, is a, is a US dollar targeted token. So Rune, has the maker system exceeded your expectations so far? Um, I guess on the amount of DAI issued, I know there's over 60 million issued right now. Um, is it growing in line with your expectations or faster or any slower? I guess it's pretty much what I expected. Uh, it's, it's actually interesting how it's been very like predictable and like linear the entire time throughout. It's just like, it's just been steadily growing. Um, uh, and of course it's not like, like it's not exponential, which is, uh, what it has to be eventually. Like, I mean, what we expect and what, what, what we are aiming for, that it will be once we launch multiple level data. Right. And I think basically, I mean, again, that's like a result of this being a technical beta. It's kind of like, we're seeing this like steady, like careful entry into the system and like people basically testing it out and then increasingly relying on it more and more. And then once again, like once we open up for, for multiple level, like, and it actually is like the official full version. Um, it's like not only are we going to see more new users just from the ecosystem and just like the Ethereum ecosystem and the blockchain space, but all our, like, I mean, we have more than 200 partnerships uh, right now for like projects all over the world, right? Like all this like traction, all these integrations, all these like pretty much any dev in the world, right? I mean, most self-respecting devs right now are using DAI because they need stability if they want to offer anything interesting. And number two, they need to be decentralized, otherwise it's not a debt. So they're pretty much all of them are working with us. And that's what we're expecting will start to really show or like go online in 2019. So Rune, just closing this gap on you know other collateral types, multi-collateral DAI is one of the largest and next updates for the MakerDAO system. When do you think that the code will be ready to go live uh, mainstream? And do you think this will be this year, next year, or when do you think it'll launch? Yeah, so actually we are working really hard right now uh, to determine a launch date. Um, so that's something we expect to, 
I mean, or at least at a timeline, right? I mean, basically, it it's ready when it's ready because this is going to be it. It's like a piece of, I mean, I wouldn't even call it a piece of software. It's more like a piece of hardware, right? Like it's a piece of like immovable code that is meant to last for thousands of years potentially. So it kind of has to be absolutely perfect basically before it's launched. So it's the stage we're at now is like the final polishing, security testing, and it's actually hard to say how long that's going to take, but it looks it looks very good and we're very optimistic about it, right? We've actually uh, formally verified almost the entire thing. Um, and yeah, I mean, we're like, when we made this announcement, uh, October 7th, sorry, September 17th, uh, we said we were going to come with like a follow-up update about like one or two months later. And we're still, we're still on track to deliver that. So Rune, I think people are really interested in the use cases for stable coins in particular. A lot of people point to the volatility in Bitcoin and other popular cryptocurrencies as not being usable for real use cases like payments or sales or revenue. What do you view as the main use cases for stable coins? Uh, one thing that comes to mind for me is just raising a billion dollars on an ICO and knowing that in a year from now, it'll still be worth a billion dollars. Uh, so what do you think are the top use cases for the DAI stablecoin today? Yeah, I mean, so we definitely look primarily, I would say, outside the crypto space, right? And so it's, and, and basically there's two really big use cases we're looking at. So one is like B2B type transactions, kind of like the Western world, like the established uh, financial system and industry. Uh, and most, the most prominent example here is trade finance and it's like trade finance related financial transactions where we actually had a super interesting partnership with TradeShift, which is one of the biggest uh, supply chain platforms in the world, where we're building like this blockchain powered trade finance marketplace with them. Um, and that's, I mean, and that's just one of like the really amazing obvious use cases for blockchain. And because like if you're building something with blockchain, you need stability and that's like, again, right. You need, you need the stable coin. Then additionally, you also have the collateral like story with trade finance in particular. Um, but there's also like there's a remittance. That's also something where we have a lot of interesting partnerships, such as with uh, Wire in the US. Um, and uh, and yeah, just like a whole bunch of other partners that are all working on international transfers in various ways. Um, Got it. That's and, interesting. And, you know, just going, you know, switching gears from the use cases to, you know, the platform itself. You know, I don't know if Maker gets a lot of credit. I know it does for people that know the story, but... The Maker token actually features real governance now, not a future of, you know, governance later. So where token holders are actually voting on changes to the system. You know, can you walk us through, you know, how easy it is for Maker token holders to vote on changes or, or propose them and any that they already have? Because it's a big deal. Yeah, so the technical component of governance has already been completed, right? And it's been live for nine months at this point. Um, but the, the, the bigger challenge is actually what we call sort of the social layer of governance, like the actual governance. Of, because one thing is like coming to like voting on stuff and executing it on the blockchain, but nothing is like figuring out what you're supposed to vote for in the first place. Um, so, so that's what we're really focusing on now. It's kind of, and, and we really see it as like a, an education process because our community is these people who have all been like very patient and like very, truly interested in the in the project and, and like doing it the right way right like um which means for instance like i said earlier also right like using scientific models using like yeah making sure that it 
its sound, make, keeping it like keeping it stable. So we are so we were, we had this framework that we've been developing internally, and that we're now essentially in the process of sharing with the community and like teaching to the community, but also obviously like develop in dialogue with the community. Um, and basically, that's like it's that process itself that just grow in on my that is really the governance process itself, right? It's like this group based learning where we basically continuously discuss what are like the best, you know, like what are the best practices? What are like the ways to think about this? Um, ultimately, we are very opposed, so we are not, you know, like a populist system, I guess you can say, right? Or like a like we're not like a like like a political democracy or something like that where it's about like who can make the most noise or like who has who's the most popular it's it's very important that it's like based in in like you know in evidence and uh, and, and models and theory and you know for the for the sake of the users got it so basically what you're saying is you want the maker tokens to have control over the platform, but you also want the smartest, most in-tune people that have this math and scientific background to be the ones proposing and enacting the changes. Yeah, basically the maker token holders, I mean, they're re- what the really important role that they play is sort of figuring out who the smartest people are, who are the experts we should listen to. And then there's the, like one thing you can do is you can vote accordingly to what, you know, who you think made the best argument. Or you can literally delegate your votes to that person and let him vote on your behalf. That's interesting. So just so the listeners know, I mean, the maker token holders have control basically over the platform. So they get to vote in what, well, I don't know if they can now or they can't now, but they get to vote in new types of collateral, whether it be crypto asset, new oracles to pull in price streams, um, you know, the risk parameters within the collateral types and and all of those things. Um, you know, do you see that being a regular occurrence, Rune, or do you think that these votes are going to happen daily, weekly, quarterly? You know, I'm just wondering, you know, how often maker token holders are going to have to vote on changes? Yeah, so, and so first of all, so maker token holders, maker token holders right now do have, like, full autonomous control of the system. Um, and they can't vote in new collateral because it's not multi-collateral yet, but once, the moment multi-collateral launches... They will also have full autonomous control over that, um, and but and but then what we've designed is like this very clear, like very straightforward framework for how the governance process will actually work. So it's kind of like everything, um, you know, so to basically make sure it doesn't become chaotic, right? But then we actually know what's going to happen, so people can also rely on this system. As on one hand, it's like controlled by an autonomous collective, but on, not, on the other hand, it's actually very predictable and uh, yeah, stable. So the process is basically that we have this, like, the governance community of, of experts who, like, basically a scientific community of people who actually are, uh, like, academic or professional risk managers, right? Um, and they continuously try to reach scientific consensus on the, mo- like, on the models and on the data that we apply to the various collateral tokens. And, um, and also, there, we have this objective approach to what can be added as collateral, so... It's not like it's meant to be basically as long as you live up to the requirements of the models and you pr- produce the right data, you will get added no matter of whether people like you or not because it's not, again, it's not supposed to be about popularity, right? Um, and then ultimately when things, when there isn't, it, it isn't possible to reach a scientific consensus and when there are like things that are disputed or th- simply things that are unclear, then MKR holders act kind of as the, 
like the decision maker or the tiebreaker in what's called a governance mode. So they can occur at any time, basically, when there is some particular issue that needs to, where a decision needs to be made. MK holders will, will poll on that issue with a governance mode. And, and a governance mode is entirely like um, in the social layer, I guess you could say, right? So the governance mode is not something you do in the maker core system. It's something you do sort of uh, to signal your intentions, like signal, yeah, signal your belief, right? And then ultimately, the results of the governance votes, as well as other data that MKR holders can produce. So you can, I mean, this is not something that's coming in the short run, but like it's planned to basically have these type of mechanisms where MKR holders can like just like provide various, like they can give their opinions about all the different types of tokens and like sort of add them into the, the data that's available to the governance framework. Um, and then we be, be weighted according to the MKR holdings, for instance. And ultimately, all of these various sources of data, as well as the outcomes of the governance votes, um, are the and, and the models themselves, right, that are that are part of the governance framework, are then compiled into sort of a, de a deterministic output. Uh, so, like basically, like the results of we took all the data, we ran all the models. These are the risk parameters we get for each collateral type, and and every quarter those risk parameters are then pushed to the system in what's called an executive vote. So uh, basically it's a quarterly cycle. So there, so every quarter there's a new executive vote, the system risk parameters are updated, new collateral types are added, some are maybe removed. And then it all sort of starts over, right? It becomes this new, like then the discussion begins again and it's about like what are the new collateral types, like what, what do people, like which models should maybe be changed. And there's basically this like iterative discussion that maybe culminates in one or more governance votes over the course of the quarter. And then at the end of the next quarter, there's another executive vote, and it just continues like this. Got it. And Rune, you know, let's imagine a future, you know, quickly of, you know, two years from now, let's say there's, you know, a few billion die outstanding. There's, you know, potentially hundreds, if not thousands of different collateral types. I mean, how is the system going to be able to keep up with, you know, handling the collateralization ratios and all the metrics for all of these, you know, hundreds of collateral types. I mean, in my mind, most of the collateral will probably just be in the in the top five cryptos or something like that. Is that the best way to think about it? Well, that's that's not what we intend for. So what we hope is that, let's say, two years from now, that the collateral will be massively diversified, right? And in fact, that is one of the core, like basically that's one of the core tenets of risk management, right? It's like hedging diversification. So the, the, the governance framework itself is set up to encourage diversification and basically provide better terms, you know, like better conditions for collateral types that are with, an, uh, you know, risk, with a risk profile that is less represented currently in the collateral portfolio and actually be biased against something that's already a lot of, so that it, it by itself tries to balance out and make the, the collateral portfolio as diversified as possible. And then, I mean, yeah, then, so there's going to be a, a ton of different collateral types and they are all going to have their individual risk parameters. And basically the, like what we're relying on to really scale this in the long run is the fact that this is an open source scientific community, right? So this is going to be like, as there are thousands of collateral types, there's also going to be thousands of experts. Like there's going to be a massive group of people, coming together to discuss all the various aspects of this and sort of focusing on the areas where they have expertise and where they have knowledge. Um, and then ultimately, uh, the, you know, like the, the system will rely on, on the kind of like hierarchy or like kind of like these, like the, 
something called risk teams, which are kind of like the um, sort of the authoritative experts chosen by MPI holders. And not like they don't have any special powers in the system. It's just symbolic that they are like, they're basically, uh, people basically signal that these are the people who sort of steward the whole governance process, right? And who, yeah, who basically help take the sort of the grassroots input from all the various like members of the scientific community and ultimately help um, distill it into, yeah, like in, into something that ends up being the actual risk parameter output of the framework. Got it. So, you know, in the future, I mean, is, is am I going to be able to, you know, let's say I have a, a building in Brooklyn and it's tokenized and I have a thousand security tokens and it represents a $10 million building, you know, would it be very hard to use that as backing to create DAI and, and get DAI out of that? Or is this something that would only be for mainstream assets, do you think? Well, the goal is certainly that it should be as e- like the friction for that should be the lowest possible. So, uh, I mean, how we get there is, of course, still something we need to, to figure out, basically, because it's hard. Like, there are all there are already at this point, like, many different per, like um, permutations, right, of, of how you do security tokens and what, what it actually means, like, how you, how you, how do you also risk assess it. Uh, there's even the legal and regulatory questions of, are you even allowed to put in the CDP, and what does that even mean? Luckily... All of this is something we're working very hard on, right? And we're really seeing a lot of progress. In particular, just like over this year, we've basically, like we've really gone from from just having like a vision to have like the foundations of the framework that can that can actually handle this and can ultimately create that frictionless onboarding from any collateral anywhere, basically. Um, and yeah, we only like we only expect that to 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 improve much more in 2019. Got it. So, you know, the, we're talking a lot about the platform and the series of smart contracts where users lock up their collateral like Ethereum now for DAI. But in reality, you know, most users won't have to do this. They could just purchase DAI on an exchange and use it as their stable coin. You know, do, how many, I mean, do you imagine most people having to go through the process to create DAI? Or do you think most people are just going to buy it on an exchange and use it? I definitely think that the average user will, I mean, I don't think the average user will even buy the exchange. Even that thing, even that will be abstracted away, right? DAI will just be on their app. They'll just be, they'll just see US dollars. They may not even necessarily, I mean, it's possible that for regulatory reasons, they have to be shown as DAI, but they will not think about it as like a crypto, as like something that they have to get into, in, a, in off and out of. It's just money. And it's just like how you move your money. Um, and, yeah, like for, for the CDP process and how they're generated, I mean, that's also really something where I think it's likely that a lot of people also end up using CDPs, but for the like in the same way, it'll also be abstracted away. So it could be in the end when you get your mortgage, like when you get a mortgage for your house, you actually are generating a CDP or you're interacting with the maker system in some way, but you're doing that through some sort of front end or through some sort of you know usability service because Nobody wants to, like, I mean, end users, normal people don't want to deal with blockchain stuff, right? They don't want to deal with complicated tech. They just want to get cheaper loans or they just want to get better money. And that's what, like, that's what, how we fundamentally look at it, right? We're designing infrastructure and like, a, yeah, right? Like an infrastructure platform that many other projects and companies will build on top of. Got it. That, that's key. And, you know, let's dive into how DAI um, is kept stable. I think it's a beautiful 
platform and smart contracts. And if people aren't aware of how it works, they definitely should be. You know, there's numerous ways in which DAI is kept very close to one dollar. Um, you know, one of the main features is just arbitrage when the price gets too high or too low. Um, Rune, how do you? What do you think is the most powerful stability mechanism? You know, on a daily basis, um, and then we can get into the emergency shutdown feature afterwards. Yeah. So, um, so right now in the technical beta, right in single level time, um, there's actually only ever been one, like one instance of a, like a stability adjustment to the system, which was when we increased when uh, when the governance process actually voted to increase the stability fee of the system. So basically, what is what is happening is that there's so much belief, basically, in like the market uh, that the stability mechanism of changing the stability fee. I'll get into detail about that in just a moment. Like, there's just so much belief that that will work. That, like you're saying, right? There's these this arbitrage, these like incentives for people to, when they see die below one dollar, they sit like they they are betting on the fact that the stability mechanism will bring it back to one dollar. That they actually just bring it back themselves because they buy it below $1 until it gets to $1. Um, and then in some cases, that's not enough. Like, so actually what we saw happening early this year was that um, there, had, there had been this like growing imbalance. So basically there had been more and more people or rather more and more market makers. So like traders in the market who don't actually want to have a, a particular position, right? They just want to provide liquidity. They were starting to accumulate more and more die. So actually there were more people borrowing die than there were people like more regular end users borrowing dive than there were regular end users holding dive, and as a result, um, the uh, the foundation's risk team then determined that we would have to increase the stability fee to ensure that the market makers wouldn't start basically paying less for dive because they already had so much. Um, so that and that actually helped alleviate the problem. Right? So that by increasing stability fee, it became just a little bit less attractive to borrow dive, and as a result this like imbalance leveled out and the rate at which that, like the demand for holding die and demand for borrowing die, they started growing in tandem. And so in multilateral die, so, so, but, so this is a very crude system, right? There's actually like manual adjustments to the stability fee and it was done like based on this like, uh, like feedback from like individual market makers and, and uh, involved the, the foundation's risk team. In multilateral diet, this is actually going to be controlled in a way more autonomous and much more continuous and yeah, just ha- way more efficient way, right? So first of all, there's going to be what's called the reward rate. Oh, sorry, the savings rate. So the die savings rate. Um, and the die savings rate is basically like the money you get for holding die because there is actually... That just like when you have money in the bank, you get an, you get an interest on your deposit. With die, you get a savings rate on the die you've saved up, um, and and this rate is one of the like it's basically the the, the main thing that adjusts sort of that, that yeah that has like a direct effect on the demand for die right. And then there is the stability fee, which is the main thing that has an effect on the supply of die. So a higher savings rate result in more demand for die because people will want it more if it if it gives you a higher yield. And a higher stability fee results in a lower supply of dye because people will not want to borrow as much dye if it's more expensive to do so. Got it, Rune. So just before we move forward, just to unpack a little bit. So today, if dye is below a dollar, there's an incentive to buy it because there's an expectation dye will go up, 
you know, closer to a dollar so they can make a profit. If DAI is above a dollar, users can go through the process to lock up collateral, purchase DAI, sell it at the higher price, basically shorting it, then buy it back lower to make a profit. That's the everyday method of how DAI maintains its value close to a dollar. And in multi-collateral DAI, you're moving to a world where you have the savings rate where you earn an interest rate on DAI held. So, um, and then the, the stability fee can also adjust. So now you have two more autonomous adjustments. I mean, why would you have to go this route when, you know, what you're seeing just with clear arbitrage works so well today? Well, so, I mean, so this, the clear arbitrage, I mean, so that, um, that factor will still be there, of course. And it, and that is the main thing that actually results in the, in the actual sort of visible stability of DAI. But that arbitrage and the, like that arbitrage relies on incentives that all, and those incentives are ultimately the expectation of the, the rates adjustment. And, and so, like I was saying, that was, so we, and the, the thing is just that right now those rates adjustments are done manually and it's only been done once so far, but it did actually have to be done because yeah, basically there's, I mean, although if you don't actually have that, then supply and demand is not going to match, right? Because it doesn't naturally find a balance. You have to actually like manage the system so that you, you engineer the balance and keep the, the price stable at $1. Um, so, so basically it's, uh, the, the big difference is going to be that by having these adjustments continuous, um, it's, it's basically going to be more stable. Like it will actually result in like more stability of the system and sort of like even more predictability from the point of view of the people who are doing the, the arbitrage basically. So when they see just a slight deviation from $1, they know with absolute certainty that this not, that deviation is not going to last long. So I better like capitalize on it right now. Um, got it, it got it. Very low risk. So if let's say, you know, the price of die for some reason goes to 90 cents, you know, down 10 cents from a dollar and, you know, the savings rate would go up to incentivize people to buy and hold die to get a better, you know, return on their die. You know, how is that changed? Is it like, a, is it like a benchmark? Like if die goes down by a cent, the savings rate goes up by, you know, percent, how does that work or how will that work? Yeah, so, I mean, this is actually an open question. So this is like a big scientific subject in itself, right? And We're getting so, too far ahead of ourselves. <laughs> well, I mean, we, we do have, of course, a good basic model because that's going to be necessary for it to, to, yeah, to be stable. And that's also what we've been... But, I mean, and yeah, that's, so that's basically also what we've been emulating with these manual adjustments. So basically it is that if there is sort of a... If there is a persistent deviation from the pick for like a period of time... An adjustment happens. And then basically if like, so then let's say, yeah, let's say that suddenly the, the price of die is 90 cents and it stays at 90 cents for, I mean, this it's, 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 uh, we still don't, we still haven't decided. So like the foundation will come up forward with a proposal on this eventually, right? But like before, before launch of multiple level die, but we still haven't decided what, what the time frame is going to be. It could be something like one hour perhaps. So like if the price stays at 90 cents, if the, the price of, of one die is 90 cents for an hour and it doesn't go back up, then there is an autonomous adjustment of the savings rate. So the savings rate may increase from 1% per year to 2% per year or something, in, oh, which of course is in real time, right? I mean, so it's, it's displayed, it's sort of communicated as APR, but really it's, it's actually continuous down to the, like to the blocks on Ethereum, basically. So 
Got it. So, I mean, you guys not only have, I know we hate to talk in levels. It's so overused on in the crypto world, but I mean, but like on level one per se, you guys have arbitrage keeping die stable, which it has been stable. And then you're going to ha- also have these other mechanisms to then keep it even more stable in the future in a multi-collateral die world. Yeah. And so just to be clear, we do already have all of these levels uh, implemented as well, available, even in the current version of the system. But the second level, which is the race adjustment, is going to be significantly upgraded in multiple level die. So first of all, it will be continuous, right? So it will happen maybe every hour or like it'll be yeah, right, it'll be a continuous process that uh, is like evaluates the balance and the stability of die with much more granularity. And then it also adds the savings rate. So right now in single level die it only applies to the stability fee. So it only deals with the supply with the supply side, right? It can make it more attractive to generate die or less attractive to generate die, but it can actually affect the demand for holding die. But in multi-level die, the savings rate will also if create an effect on the demand side. And that means the adjustments have to be much smaller to get to still achieve the same effect because now you, you create one effect on the supply side and you create a similar effect on the demand side. So you kind of get the, what we call the double effect, right? Where the overall adjustments are just less. And as a result, that also makes the, the system more stable. But the good thing about that is, I mean, so you're getting more specific on how close DAI will be to a dollar. So instead of being, you know, two placeholders over, now you're going to get real specific and it'll be, you know, 0.999 per se, something like that. Yeah, I mean, I like to think of it in terms of like more in terms of time, actually, like how long do you have to wait until you can be sure you can do a one to one swap out of the system? And um, I think eventually we will like we'll start thinking in terms of targeting like a time to get like a time for guaranteeing, uh, you know, like a, just like a free on or off ramping for the system. Uh, but, but more importantly is to like in the short run, it's also just about getting the spreads down. So like, I mean, it's, it will always be, it'll always, there'll always be some price if you just want to get out of die at some volume or get into die at some volume at, at an exact moment in time. That will typically, like, as soon as we have launched multiple level die, we start to have this, like, direct, uh, we start to have stable conscious collateral, we start to have to see more die against fiat pairs rather than die against uh, volatile cryptocurrency pairs. Then it'll effectively always be $1. Like there, and and what, people will, what, what people will feel is not volatility in die. What they will feel are the spreads for moving from fiat into die. And those spreads will, of course, be incredibly low, right? I mean, if, like basis points low, right? And it's and it's all about getting them to the lowest possible level and, and then also getting the system to a point where if you wait for enough time, you can even do it without any spread whatsoever. You can just do a, like a free transfer because you can find someone else who wants to do the opposite trade you can match up with. Got it. So, you know, just at the extreme end of the stability mechanisms, you guys do have the emergency shutdown feature that was known in the past as global settlement. Basically that you know, unwinds the entire system and users are able to redeem die for a dollar worth of collateral, you know, can you walk us through, you know, a quick overview of how the emergency shutdown feature would work and, you know, how that's a powerful incentive to keep die stabilized as well? Yeah. So the emergency shutdown can kind of be described like a game theoretic nuclear deterrent or something like that, right? It's like, there's like really, extremely powerful tool that we can use in the system 
um, that that really guarantees us that no matter what, like there's certain guarantees in the system, right? Basically, the worst thing that can happen to you if you hold hold die, like hold one die, is that you get one dollar worth of collateral out of the system. So even if you don't um, trust like the val- like the value of die itself, right? Like you can just if if you trust the underlying collateral, if you think the collateral is valuable, you can look at the code and you can see, okay, the worst thing that can happen to me is that I get the collateral directly, right? And I get that according to the internal price feeds of the system, which are of course protected uh, also with like crypto economic mechanisms that keep them safe. Um, but yeah, so ba- like so so the idea is that emergency shutdown never has to happen because. If it does happen, it, the whole system shuts down and then it has to be redeployed and it's kind of like a UX friction where the user would have to like uh, push some buttons to kind of like upgrade the diet to the new diet. Um, Got it. But, that that yeah. makes sense. And, you know, your other, the other stability mechanism in here, you know, now that we're talking about extremes is that, in, you know, in the event that a CDP is closed and, and the collateral can't cover the debt, Maker tokens can be automatically printed and sold, I believe, to repurchase um, DAI to stabilize the token. Um, can you go into, you know, how that works? Is it automatic and any risks there? Yeah, so this is one of the key features of the system because this also is what helps align the incentives of governance and, and the end user. So basically, because MKR holders govern the system and set the risk parameters for the system, so they decide, for instance, how much extra collateral you need to, um, you know, like how how much your your Ethereum uh, collateralized deposition has to be over collateralized. Um, they they may you know they're predicting how what's the worst thing that can happen to Ethereum, and if they're wrong, that actually means the system is now a lot, like out of money. And and the only way that, like what it means when they're wrong is that there's like an extremely quick crash, right? Like a massive crash in ETH that actually like makes it fall more than 33% in this scenario, for instance, where the over-collateralization is 150% um, in, in the span of like, an actually like a very short period of time. Like it actually, yeah, let's say be a, a 50% fall in the span of a couple of hours. That would be enough to, to trigger MKR dilution in the system because that would, that would mean that now the debt in this CDP is, is uh, more than the value of the collateral, right? So there's an amount of collateral that's supposed to back the die that was created out of that collateral, but the collateral doesn't have that value anymore. So now that means the system is insolvent, actually, right? There's die floating around out there that doesn't even have any backing. And that's, of course, uh, totally unacceptable for the stability of the system. So what then happens is, because the MKR holders are the ones who are responsible for this never happening, right? Because they said the risk variables, but of course will never be like they will never, every like there will always be mistakes, right? There'll always be like uh, misses. So the system has to be fundamentally designed to handle that, and that has to be like a part of of the whole process. So what happens is the the whatever shortfall there is in the system has to basically be recapitalized uh, on the MKR holders' time. So MKR is inflated, so new MKRs are printed, and then that's used to buy die out from the market and destroy it thus equalizing the system again, right? Because if there's a shortfall of, let's say, a million die that's no longer backed by collateral, we, what we do then is we buy, out, we buy out a million die from the market and we destroy it. And now that million, like, and now we've covered the shortfall because now it's back in balance. 
Got it. So basically the beauty of this system is that since maker can be automatically printed and thus diluted to cover dye, the holders of dye who are doing the governance features have a strong incentive to make sure that the collateralization ratios they choose and the collateral types are all secure and stable. Yeah, right. It's about trying to solve the principal agent problem, right? Because MKL is really our best off if they keep the system perfectly stable. Because if they, if they keep the system perfectly stable and nothing risky happens, nothing crazy is going on, they just get to earn that continuous stability fee from the system. Got it. On the other hand, if they take risky bets, then that's actually not good because they stand to lose. They, they, they'll have to pay for all the, the risks they're taking. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And um, I don't want to get into the, the detailed valuation model I did on you guys. It'll take too long. But I want to get into the other side of the inflation to maker, which is the deflation to the token. Um, the way I understand it is that when a user wants to repay their CDP, collateralized debt position that they used to create DAI, they have to pay the stability fee in maker tokens. And then I believe those tokens are then burned, uh, thus deflating uh, makers. Is that exactly how the supply works there? Yeah, that's exactly how the system works right now. So, I mean, actually, yeah, so all the MKR fees are collected in this contract called the burner. And um, the burner hasn't actually been activated yet. But that's basically just a matter of like governance deciding to activate it. Once it has been activated, the tokens will actually be removed from the supply. So you can even go and see it on like coin market cap, for instance. You can just see like the 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 total supply of NKR just continuously decreasing over time. Um, but but effectively these tokens have already been burned because the only like they're stuck there no matter what. They're out of the circulating supply. And eventually they will be literally removed from the total supply. Um, but the way it actually works is going to be slightly different to multiple level diet because it'll no longer be that you have to pay your fee with MKR because that's actually a little bit annoying that you have to like also deal with MKR just to use CDPs. So it's going to be abstracted away and you just pay your fees with diet. But under the hood, the MKR burn still happens for you. So whatever you pay in fees ultimately goes to burning MKR. Oh, wow. So users won't even know that they're paying in Maker. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, all right, cool. And then, you know, just going back to collateral ratios, you know, I, I did a, some math. It took a while, but I, I kind of assumed a single or, a, you know, half the collateral in the die world is attributed to Ethereum. And, and I kind of found that the amount of ETH of ETH's total supply that could be locked in makers contracts could be anywhere from, you know, four to 20%. So, you know, how do you think about you know, a large percentage of popular coins basically being locked in maker smart contracts. I mean, it's great for the system, but it seems like it would add a lot of volatility to the underlying cryptocurrencies that are used to back die itself. Yeah, I mean, I think from from where we're standing right now, I think it will mostly add a lot of upwards pressure, right? Because it would mean a significant reduction of the, the circulating supply of these tokens. Um, but overall, it's actually, like, I mean... It would be great, of course, to have a lot of all the popular cryptocurrencies in, in DAI. But then the important thing is also to make sure that we have other uncorrelated stuff in there as well. Because it's not really so good if it's just a whole pot of like hot crypto that's highly volatile because now it's been like now there's been a whole bunch of the supply locked up and it's looking really good, but maybe later that's gonna like the system can also have the opposite effect, right? Because if the price of the level falls, there'll be margin calls and there'll actually be like fire sales and so on. So um, 
Yeah, the most important thing for us is that it needs to be highly diversified. So we're really looking forward to security tokens, to other stable coins, uh, just like uncorrelated assets that we can put in there to really make it like scale in a safe way. Got it. That makes sense. And, you know, just switching gears here, Andreessen Harwood's purchased 6% of your maker tokens. Um, you guys got some pushback in the ecosystem because people were like, you know, why should they have control over who buys this? You know, I get it. You know, I kind of agree with you guys that the maker token is control over the system, not the foundation supply. Um, I'm more interested in what does Andreessen Horowitz actually bring you guys um, outside of their purchase? Do they bring you help with regulations or implementations or anything there? Yeah, I mean, so um, so Andreessen Horowitz really helped us with, I guess, you know, connecting to the old world, right? And like, I mean, at this point, we are we, we started off as really old school, uh, true like crypto project, right? But now we're increasingly starting to look more like a, just like a financial platform, right? Like a financial project. And as a result, regulation, compliance, legal, um, but also, you know, just like, I mean, branding and marketing and reputation and so on, right? And legitimacy is just becoming increasingly important for us. And Andreessen Horowitz is, as I mean, that's basically like the ultimate shortcut for all of this, right? It's kind of like a way for us to really cement the things that we, like that are not our traditional strengths, but that we're increasingly becoming better at. And now we are adding this like really big set of tools to our toolbox that can complement all the other work we're already doing. So in particular, what we're really excited about is that this is uh, Katie Horn's first deal. And so Katie Horn is the new general partner on A16C Crypto. And uh, she's actually pretty famous in the crypto world, right? Because she led the, like the Mt. Gox. She, so she was a federal prosecutor on the, the blockchain task force, uh, cryptocurrency task force. So she, was, she led the investigation, like the, the second investigation into the Silk Road and also the investigation into the Mt. Gox case uh, and just really has like, like probably the best insight into how the American federal government thinks about crypto and blockchain and like where the, the different regulatory agencies, what stages they're at in this thinking, right? And can really, I mean, has already really provided us with really tremendous insight and sort of help uh, improve our existing regulatory plan. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I, I know you guys did get flack because the implied valuation on where they purchased their tokens was a, was a discount to the trading price. But, you know, if anybody's been watching Maker Token over the last three weeks, the token moves pretty wildly because the liquidity is so low. I mean, have you heard, I, I don't know what you can comment on here, but do you envision more exchanges coming on to increase liquidity or, or how do you think that can be helped? Yeah, I mean, we are, we're, we're working on more exchanges, adding uh, the tokens right bit. Of course, we're also taking it slow and just doing it, taking a step-by-step patient approach to this. Um, and in terms of like the price that Andreessen got, Basically, there's two really, really major factors to consider, right? So first is like the really incredible value they add. Just for instance, like, I mean, just with the legitimacy of their brand and like Katie Horn's endorsement, kind of like her, you know, her character and what that, that gives us. But then there's also the, the more like, uh, just like other resources, you know, like in terms of business development resources, marketing resources. And like they're, they have, you know, they have an incubation team, right? This whole like staff of people that, we can now draw on and then works directly with our various teams uh, to support them. 
Um, but then the second factor is that they have a really long lockup, right? So they have a one-year lockup for one-third of the tokens and a three-year lockup for the remaining two-thirds of the tokens. Um, but finally, I mean, we just did this, like, Maker is all about governance, right? I mean, this really is what Maker fundamentally is about. It's like creating a new and better and more innovative form of open governance, right? Um, so it's all about getting the right people involved. So even though some people, you know, don't like this deal, on the other side of the spectrum, 6% of the Maker tokens that are going to be voted in the future are in the hands of some of the smartest people in the world. Yeah, exactly. And also, they're going to pave the way for... I mean, they will be... And they're, they're guaranteed to be involved in governance for three years, right? Because the three-year lockup. Probably, they'll get used to it. And they'll... I mean, that's obviously what they... I mean, obviously, that's what we think, right? And also what they what they're predicting right that they will this is a part of core part of what they want to do with their fund got it um and one of my last questions for you Rune, is uh well, not my last one of my last is i think that maker doesn't face too many problems except at the extremes one of those extremes being a complete collapse of the crypto market i mean how do you view these i mean black swan events are terrible for everybody but with you guys there's inherent leverage as people put their die back into collateral and create more die and leverage up to three times or whatever, you know, how do you view a collapse in the crypto market? Would that affect maker and die? Well, so, I mean, if the system is governed correctly, it should have no effect, really, right? Because that if with, with, with the right type of governance, we will have enough diversification to be able to absorb even a total collapse of a single asset type. So basically, it's about like um, you know, like analyzing and like predicting the inherent risk of the, the cryptocurrency part of the collateral portfolio, and then making sure that the portfolio as a whole is diversified and unfolded enough to handle the worst case scenario. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And Rune, one of my last questions for you: How much die do you think will be issued in ten years from now? <laughs> yeah, that's hard to say. Um, I mean, first of yeah, like like many billions, right? Like many, many billions, and also it'll take a lot of different forms. So it won't just be like die used by, you know, the, the bulk of it is not going to be like some guy holding down his phone or like trading die on the exchange or something against crypto. It'll be like uh, run, like running under these like big fintech platforms who who all uh, need, you know, to provide value, like to, to have a store value for the users, and then you just use die under the hood, and the users just see, you know, see value, like see dollars or, or whatever, right, or like it's totally abstracted away from them. Um, and then also in like B2B transactions, there's going to be these massive like transactions between businesses that ultimately are most efficient to do and die. Um, in particular, because the, the savings rate, right, where you actually can, can, you can use your money actively as money, but you can also use it as a, as a store value, right, and actually earn the savings rate on it. Um, and I think that just makes it really versatile. It means it'll be, once it starts really getting a critical mass and start reaching adoption in just like one particular area, it will very quickly spread very organically because it's just, when if someone else is already using DAI, it's even easier for you to switch to it yourself. And we already seen these like beach heads and inroads in various industries for because of people using it. I mean, both as like, just both to be the first mover and just because they see the inherent advantages. Got it. Well, Rune Christensen from the founder of MakerDAO, thanks so much for being on the podcast. And I hope to have you back on again in a few months for some updates. Absolutely. I'd love to. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the podcast to help other people find it.